for those of you who don't know me. Um, I work in full-time ministry at Hidden Acres. My wife and I attend Stonebridge with our family. We have three daughters. Mackenzie is our oldest. She's three. And then Hannah and Megan are our twins. They're one and a half. Have you ever played a game with a toddler where they understand the concept of the game, but they're terrible at actually playing it? Like, for example, hide-and-seek with my three-year-old is my favorite thing to do. Mackenzie will ask to play hide-and-seek, and then she'll run and she'll go hide behind the same chair every single time. And so I count to ten. I say, ready or not, here I come. And the whole time, she's just talking to me. Like, Daddy, I'm hiding. Daddy, come find me. And so I find her behind the chair, and she's amazed that I'm so good at the game. And then we play again, and she hides in the exact same spot. The most recent game that my girls play that they don't actually understand is they try to scare you. So this is how Mackenzie does it. She comes up to you, and she says, Daddy, can I scare you? Sure, Mackenzie. <laughs> Boo. And then you laugh, and she does it again. Uh, and she'll just keep doing it. And so now Hannah and Megan, our one-year-old twins, have started doing this as well. Mostly it's just when they want our attention, they'll go, uh, boo. And no matter how hard they try, it's just too adorable to be scary. Also, when they tell you beforehand they're going to scare you, it's just not scary at all. But even as children, they understand the concept of fear. Studies have shown that babies are born with two innate fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. And as we grow older, we learn and we develop more fears, some of them healthy and some not. I read one article that said students in a psychology class asked 500 people, what are you afraid of? The people that were surveyed listed 7,000 fears. A recent study of Google search data found the most commonly searched fear for each of the 50 states. The list included things like public speaking, spiders, the dark, needles, heights, flying, and commitment. The most commonly searched fear in the state of Iowa is the fear of clowns. Whether you search that on Google or not, all of us have something that we're afraid of. And this morning, we're going to start our Christmas series with a message on fear. You may be wondering, what does fear have to do with Christmas? A couple things. First, the Christmas story is full of fear. And second, the Christmas story offers hope for our fears. Preaching on fear is an interesting topic for me because there's part of me that wants to pretend like I don't struggle with this. I'm known as a pretty even-keeled, laid-back guy. I don't get too upset by many things, and I can appear calm in most situations. And so it would be easy for me to stand up here and preach an entire sermon on fear without being honest about my own fears. But if I'm honest, I struggle with fear more than I admit to myself or to others. I'm fearful of what other people think of me. Do they think that I'm good at my job? Do they think I'm a good Christian or a good husband or a good father? My thoughts are often consumed by the fear of how other people perceive me. I struggle with a fear of the future and the unknown. My wife and I are having our fourth child in May. For those of you keeping track at home, yes, that's four kids in less than four years. Um, and you want to know how I'm honestly feeling? I'm excited and I'm terrified. A few weeks ago, I was talking to my boss, Ryan, about this in his office. I just started crying. I don't know if you've ever cried in your boss's office before. I do it more often than I'd like to. But in that moment, I was gripped with the fear of the future. How will I provide for my family? Will I be able to balance my work life and my home life? Will I be a good enough father? What if it's twins? 
It's, it's not. I made sure they double-checked at the first ultrasound. So we're good there. But still, four kids in four years, that's scary. And if I'm honest, there are nights that fear grips my heart and refuses to let go. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe for some of you, you can relate to those. The fear of the future, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what other people think of you, the fear of children. I'm just kidding. Um, But maybe you're thinking, Eric, those are some silly fears. You want to know what keeps me up at night? You want to know what I'm going through right now? I don't know what it is you're going through right now. I don't know what it is you're afraid of. But if we're honest with ourselves, everyone in this room is afraid of something. And so this morning, we're going to look at how we see fear in the Bible, in the Christmas story, and in other places in Scripture. We're going to discuss the different types of fear and whether or not we should live in fear. First, we're going to look at fear in the Christmas story. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. There's a verse in this chapter that's going to serve as our outline for this series over the next several weeks. But I want to read more of the story so we understand the the context as we study it together. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear." And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Over the next several weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at verses 10 and 11. This incredible message that the angel gives to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born. Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This morning, we're going to look at the first phrase in that verse, fear not. The shepherds are watching their sheep one night when out of nowhere, an angel of the Lord shows up. Verse 9 says they were filled with great fear. And I'm sure even that is an understatement. The shepherds are afraid and the angel says, fear not. We see a similar encounter happen a few other times in the Christmas story. Turn back to Luke 1. Luke 1, starting in verse 11, we read about Zechariah a high priest who's been praying with his wife Elizabeth for a child. And Zechariah is serving in the temple, burning incense as an offering to God. Verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Zechariah has an angel appear to him, and he's filled with great fear. And the angel says, do not be afraid. His wife, Elizabeth, becomes pregnant and has a son who becomes John the Baptist. 
Later in chapter 1, we read about the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary. Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary has an angel appear to her and say the same thing. Do not be afraid. We see major characters in the Christmas story being told the same thing. Do not be afraid. Fear not. But beyond the angels appearing, think about how terrifying the actual Christmas story is. You saw the video of Mary explaining the situation to people in her life. Obviously, the video was meant to be humorous, but think about how fearful she must have been. Or think about Joseph engaged to be married and being told that his fiancée is pregnant. In Matthew 1, it says that he was afraid to take Mary as his wife and has an angel appear to him and tell him not to be afraid. Or the wise men following a star to meet a baby and then returning home a different way in fear of King Herod. The Christmas story is full of fear because it's an extraordinary story about ordinary people. And we as humans are so often filled with fear. Why is that? Why is it so easy for us to be afraid? I don't know about you, but I don't have angels showing up in the middle of the night in my house. And yet I live so much of my life in fear. Is there hope for the fearful heart? Is there an antidote to an anxious mind? What is fear and what should we do about it? Let's start at the beginning of scripture and look at when fear first entered the world. In Genesis 1, it describes how God created everything. He creates the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the plants and the animals. And he looks at it all and he says that it is good. He creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in this perfect garden in a perfect world, and he tells them that they can eat from any tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this beautiful depiction of a perfect creation ends with these words in chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why does it end with that phrase, that they were not ashamed? It's because they were completely innocent. They had a complete innocence before each other and before God. They had nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to feel guilty about, nothing to be afraid of. They had a perfect, sinless relationship with each other and with the God who created them. But then the serpent enters the scene. Satan comes and he tempts Eve and she takes the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to Adam and he eats it. And in that moment, humanity is changed forever. Sin has entered the human race, and Adam and Eve's relationship with each other and relationship with God would be distorted from then on. They had disobeyed the one command that God gave them, and it changed everything. Chapter 3, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They felt shame. Fear had entered the world. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God comes to meet with them and they hide. We see here the first example of fear in the human race. And fear is woven into the very fabric of humanity from that moment on. 
From the moment that Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sinned against God, humanity has been cowering in fear ever since. There are three types of fear that I want to teach on this morning. Healthy fear, harmful fear, and holy fear. There is a type of fear that's healthy. It's a God-given emotion that keeps us safe. It's a reaction to an actual danger and should be encouraged. The classic example of this is the hot stove. You teach your kids to be afraid of touching the stove because it could hurt them. A fear of bodily injury may keep you, or should keep you, from doing stupid things. A fear of an accident should cause you to drive safely. A fear of getting hit by a car should cause you to look both ways before you cross the street. When there's an actual danger that should be feared, as long as you have an appropriate reaction, it's healthy and it's not sinful to be afraid. It would be more concerning if you didn't show fear in these situations. If you drove like you didn't care if you got in an accident. If you weren't concerned at all about dangerous animals. If you had no concerns for your safety or the safety of others. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, compares this type of fear to a thunderstorm. In the moment, it may be unpleasant, but it's specific, it's contained, and it's constructive. When it's over, when the sun comes out, everything is green because the thunderstorm has caused growth. This type of fear is healthy. The second type of fear is a harmful fear that we are commanded as believers not to have. When the Bible says, do not be afraid, this is the type of fear that it's referring to. In Joshua 1.9, it says, do not be frightened. Philippians 4.6 says, do not be anxious about anything. Isaiah 43.1 says, fear not. This is the fear that keeps you up at night thinking about the worst case scenario for your career or your family or your health. It's often not a specific fear, but more of a generalized anxiety. It's a lingering feeling of fear that isn't always related to a specific event or concern. And unlike healthy fear, which causes a specific reaction, harmful fear often paralyzes and debilitates. We freeze and we're unable to do anything about it. Keller compares this type of fear to a cold drizzle when it's 34 degrees and raining all the time. Instead of making things greener, after a while, Keller says, your soul starts to mildew. Psychologist Rollo May says that this type of fear isn't just a threat to our physical beings, but it's a threat to our sense of self, our identity. Think about some of the things that you're most fearful of, the things that cause you the most anxiety in your life. Is this not accurate? I mentioned at the beginning that one of my biggest fears is what other people think of me. Why is that? It's because I often place my identity in the hands of other people. If people think I'm funny, then I put my identity in being funny. If people think I'm smart, then I put my identity in being smart. If people think I'm a good Christian or a good basketball player or whatever it is, I put my identity in their evaluation of me. And my fear of the future, it's rooted in a misplaced identity in my own control. I want to be in control of things and decide how things are going to work out. So when I can't, when my identity is stripped away and I'm faced with an uncertain future, I'm left in fear. When our identity is threatened, we can feel a debilitating sense of fear. This type of fear is deep, it's unhealthy, and it's often sinful. I want to pause and just acknowledge that Hearing about fear and anxiety may be a really difficult topic for some of you. For some who have anxiety disorders, there are real chemical issues or traumatic experiences that make this topic more challenging. 
The statistics on anxiety disorders in the United States are staggering. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 31% of adults in the U.S. experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. So if that's you this morning, my goal isn't to cure you of your anxiety. My goal is to speak truth, to offer hope, and to help you begin or continue the process of working through your fears. The third type of fear that I want to teach on is holy fear. This type of fear is different than healthy or harmful fear. It's a fear that's based on respect, reverence, and awe. Holy fear is directed towards God because God alone is worthy to be feared, and we are commanded to fear him. Deuteronomy 10.12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. It's viewing God for who he is and then submitting to him out of reverence. It's similar to the type of fear that you have when you go to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. They're massive and they're incredible and they leave you breathless. But there's also an element of this thing could kill me if I get too close to it. You stand in awe of its majesty and you respect its power. This is the type of fear that holy fear is referring to. We talked about the effects of healthy fear and harmful fear. There are also effects to holy fear. There are things that happen to us physically and spiritually when we have a holy fear of the Lord. The first effect of holy fear is salvation. Fearing God can lead to our salvation. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah describes a vision he has of standing in the throne room of God with God seated on the throne. And there are these angels that are flying all around with six wings. With two, they're covering their face because they can't look at the holy God. With two, they're covering their feet. And with two, they're flying. And Isaiah is in the middle of this scene, and he's afraid. In Isaiah 6, verse 5, it says this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is afraid because he knows he's standing in the presence of a holy and a just God. His eyes have seen the king, and he knows that he's not worthy to stand in his presence. Isaiah's fear leads to a recognition of his own sinfulness. The New Living Translation says it like this, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. A proper view of God leads to a fear of God, which leads to repentance. If we truly fear God and understand his holiness and his justice and his wrath, our natural reaction should be to cry out for forgiveness. Woe is me, I am a sinner. Then in verse 6, it says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he, put, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God cleanses Isaiah and forgives his sins. His guilt is taken away and he's able to stand in the presence of a holy God. The same is true for us today as believers. We're able to stand in the presence of God because our sins have been paid for. Except it wasn't a coal that God used to cleanse us. It was the blood of his son sent to earth as a baby, born in Bethlehem and proclaimed to shepherds in the field. That baby grew up and lived the sinless life that you and I couldn't because of the effects of sin ingrained into our DNA as a result of Adam and Eve's choice to eat from the tree. 
And Jesus died the death that you and I deserved because of our sin. And when we have a holy fear of God and stand before him and understand our own sinfulness and put our trust in him, we can have salvation. The Christmas story provides hope for our fears because it's the story of God's plan for cleansing us of our sins. Our holy fear should lead to salvation. Second, holy fear should lead to obedience. After Isaiah is cleansed from his sins, verse 8 says this, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Isaiah has a holy fear of God. He understands his need for salvation, and then he understands the need for obedience. God wants a messenger to send to his people, and Isaiah, in holy fear, obeys. And part of the message that Isaiah had to share was prophecies of the coming Messiah, Jesus. Isaiah shares the Christmas story hundreds of years before it ever happens. Our reaction should be the same. Our holy fear should lead to obedience. As I think about this idea of holy fear leading to obedience, I think about my own parents. I have a respectful fear of them, not only because my mom is stronger than me and could definitely beat me in arm wrestling, uh, but also because I love them. When we fear our parents, we respect them and we understand how much they love us. Out of that fear should come obedience. We don't want to disappoint them, so we obey what they tell us to do. The same is true of God. We know he's powerful. We know he loves us, and we want to obey him. The more we fear him, the more we'll be empowered to obey him out of our love and fear of him. Another effect of holy fear is peace. Fearing God allows us to not be afraid of anything else. Because here's the great irony of fear. When we fear God, we have nothing to be afraid of. But if we don't fear God, we should be terrified of him. If we fear God, if we view him properly, if we submit our lives to him in reverence, we have nothing to be afraid of in this life or the next. If we don't fear God, if we live our lives with an arrogant attitude that we don't need him or that we know better than him, we should be terrified of him. Hebrews ten twenty six and 27 says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we continue to deliberately live in sin after we have heard the gospel, we should be terrified of God's coming judgment. Those who live their lives without reverently submitting to God and putting their trust in Christ will have to stand before God someday without anyone or anything to take the punishment of their sin away from them. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we don't fear God, we should be terrified. But if we do fear God, we have nothing to be afraid of. Most of our fear is a direct result of an improper view of God. So when we fear God, when we view him correctly, when we stand before him in awe and reverence and fear, we can also view our fears on earth correctly and have peace. I recently read a book called How to Live in Fear, Mastering the Art of Freaking Out by Pastor Lance Hahn. In it, he writes about his own struggle with a severe anxiety disorder. He writes this, Worry and fear ultimately result 
from a belief that God is not actually in charge or that he doesn't care about us. We don't believe he is an authority or we believe that he is not active in our lives. If we truly believe that God is good and he is sovereign, then we would be able to rest in these beliefs as facts. But we don't. I'd like to believe I'm above such thinking, but I struggle just like you. Han understands that a fear of the Lord should allow us not to worry about or fear other things, but it's often more difficult than it sounds. When we fear God, we don't have to be afraid of our past because we know that God has forgiven us of all our sins. When we fear God, we don't have to be afraid of the future because we know that God is in control. When we fear God, we don't have to be afraid of what other people think because we know what God, our Father, thinks. When we fear God, we don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen to our children because we know that God loves them even more than we do. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. If you want life and rest and peace, fear the Lord. So how do we handle our fears this Christmas season? Fear God and fear not. Stand in awe of God, but don't let fear control your life. So how do we do that? I have three thoughts on how to fear God and three thoughts on how to fear not. In order to fear God, first, look at the world. If you want to fear God, go outside and look at everything that God has created. He spoke the world and all of creation into existence, and he reveals his glory to us through his creation. So take some time over the Christmas season and be intentional about spending time in creation so that you can fear God. Maybe you're going somewhere warm for Christmas. I'm jealous. I'm going to Michigan. Uh, and you're going to a beach or the ocean. Look at the ocean and be amazed that God created that. Maybe you're traveling somewhere with mountains. Again, jealous, going to Michigan. Take some time to stand in awe of God's creation. Maybe you're staying here in Iowa. Go outside on a clear night and look at the stars. God created all of that with his voice. Psalm 8, 3 through 4 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Do you hear the fear and the awe in those verses? When I look at the moon and the stars, I'm amazed by you, God. God has revealed himself to us through his world. Look at it and fear God. Second, look at his word. If you want to fear God, if you want to have a proper view of God and stand in awe of him, read the Bible. Read through the Old Testament and see how powerful God is. Look at his wrath against people that don't love him. Look at the protection that he gives to his people. Look at how he called Abraham, how he called Moses, how he delivered his people from slavery. Read through the Psalms and just listen to the descriptions of God. Read through the New Testament and see how Jesus lives his life in awe and reverence to God. Read passages like Revelation 4, where John does his best to describe his vision of God and heaven. Look to the word, read the Bible, to see God's revelation of himself to us and stand in fear. Third, look at his wounds. God created everything. He gave us his words in the Bible, and he also sent his son to earth as a little baby to an ordinary mother in a small town in the middle of nowhere. 
And he proclaimed it to some ordinary shepherds in the middle of the night. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't. And he died on a cross and rose again to save ordinary people like you and I. That should cause a holy fear of God. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you could be in a relationship with him. Look at his nail-pierced hands, the wounds in his side, and stand in awe. Fear God by looking at his world, looking at his word, and looking at his wounds. So if that's how we fear God, how do we fear not? How do we live our lives without this harmful fear? I have three thoughts for application that I hope are simple, but not simplistic. They're simple in that they sound easy to do, but I know that the reality is they're often extremely difficult. The first step to fear not is talk to God. The first step we should always take when we're afraid is to bring it to God in prayer. God is in control. He knows everything, and he loves you more deeply than you can know. He wants to hear your fears and your concerns. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When you're filled with fear, talk to God. Second, in order to fear not, talk to others. Kerry Newhoff, a pastor in Canada, when he was reflecting on a difficult season in his own life, offers this piece of advice. He says, tell somebody. If you're struggling, don't struggle alone. Nothing good grows in the dark. If you let fear stay in the dark, it won't produce anything healthy in your life. It'll only continue to eat away away at you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But if you bring your fears into the light, if you open up with someone you can trust, you can shine a light on your fear and start to work through them. In my house, I'm often the last one to go to bed, and so it's my responsibility to turn off all the lights. In our house, our kitchen is on the opposite end as our bedroom, and so often if I'm in the kitchen working on something, it'll be the only light that's on in the house. And so before I go to bed, I'll I'll turn off the kitchen light and walk to our bedroom in the dark. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're walking in the dark and you see something that scares you. The other night, I was walking back to our room, and I saw our Christmas tree in the living room. The lights were off, but there was light coming in from the street, and so there was just this seven-foot-tall silhouette in our living room, and it freaked me out. For half a second, I thought there was a person just standing in the corner of our living room. Have you ever had this where you see something in the dark that shouldn't scare you, but it does because it's dark? What do you do? You have a couple of options. You can just turn on the light and realize, oh yeah, we put up our Christmas tree this morning, or it's a pile of clothes, or it's a chair, or whatever it is. Light illuminates and it clarifies And what was terrifying in the dark is often nothing to be afraid of in the light. The other option would have been for me to look at the Christmas tree, get scared because I thought it was a person, and then go to bed thinking there's a person in my living room. And I would have laid there, and I would have gone through all the different scenarios in my mind about what that person was going to do in my house. Was he going to steal our TV? Is he going to come into our room? Is he going to take one of my children? And my fear would have become bigger and bigger as I rehearse all these worst-case scenarios in my mind because I was convinced that there's a person, a seven-foot-tall person, in my living room. It sounds ridiculous when it's just a Christmas tree, right? Like, I would never actually do that. I would just turn on the light and remember, oh yeah, it's a Christmas tree. But I do this with my other fears all the time. 
I have a fearful thought, and in the darkness of my mind, it scares me. But instead of bringing it into the light and telling someone about it, I let it stay in the darkness where it grows into more and more fear. The fears that we hold on to are often not as scary as we think they are. We build bigger and bigger monsters in our mind when if we just shine a light on them, we'll see them for what they really are. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, The worst evils of life are those which do not exist except in our imagination. If we had no troubles but real troubles, we should not have a tenth part of our present sorrows. The worst evils, the worst fears in our life are often only in our imagination or are simply made worse through our imagination. When I talked to Ryan about my fears with our fourth child, I was terrified. My mind was consumed with fear of what was going to happen, and I couldn't see past my fears. But as soon as I vocalized them, I realized that, yes, there are real things to be concerned about, and please pray for us. But my fears aren't as bad as I had made them in my mind. If you're gripped with fear, talk to someone. Whether that's a friend, a spouse, a counselor, or someone in your connection group, don't let your fear stay in the dark. Nothing good grows in the dark. Talk to others. The third step to fearing not is to talk to yourself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Most of our fears come from listening to ourselves, but our hearts are deceitful. We don't naturally tell ourselves the truth. We think things like, there's no way this is going to work out. No one loves me. Everything is going to fall apart. I'll never get through this. There is no hope. And that's the soundtrack that we play in our mind and we listen to it. But our fears lie to us. And if we aren't actively reminding ourselves of truth, if we aren't speaking truth to ourselves, then our hearts and our minds will continue to be saturated in the lies of fear. If we begin talking to ourselves and reminding ourselves of truth, our fears will be replaced with hope. Our fears will be replaced with courage. Our fears will be replaced with truth. So when you're faced with a circumstance that causes fear, if you listen to yourself and the natural voice of fear in your mind, you may hear things like, this isn't going to go well. There's no way we get through this. I'm going to fail. But if you speak truth to yourself, if you remind yourself that God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, you'll be able to have peace in the midst of your circumstances. If you speak the gospel to yourself, you'll remember that God loves you, that God is in control, and that he works together all things for good. And you'll be able to face whatever fear you have. Don't let fear lie to you. Talk truth to yourself. So this Christmas season, remember the hope that the Christmas story provides. The God of the universe came down to earth as a baby, as part of his plan to save you. Stand before God in holy fear. Look at his world, look at his word, and look at his wounds. And remember that when you fear God, you have nothing to be afraid of. When fear grabs a hold of your heart this Christmas season, talk to God, talk to others. And talk to yourself. Fear God and fear not. Let's pray.